in the book of Revelation, and uh, later on we're going to make some digressions into the book of uh, Joshua, and I'm sure you're all very familiar with the book of Joshua, um, but if I say to you the book of Joshua is really the book of Revelation, that might come as a surprise <laughs> to somebody in the Old Testament, I should add. Uh, so uh, we're just going to do a quick recap, and we're going to see a couple of things in the Old Testament that I, I think may surprise you. Okay. So just, just by the way of repetition of what we were looking at last week, remember we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse in, in, in Revelation 6, and then uh, uh, we've got the, uh, the Lord's teaching in Matthew 24, often called the, the, the Olivet Discourse, and some people get this very confused, and they think, that this is uh, actually referring to, to some that are taken. You remember it says one is taken, one is left behind. They say, oh, that must be the rapture. It's not. If you read it on contextually, you see that one is taken to judgment. It says in verse 37, I think it says, that where the, the bodies are, the, 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 the eagles or the vultures will gather. So it's not taken to be raptured. Uh, it's actually a picture of... Uh, the, what takes place after the rapture. Now, I'll show that to you, and I'll, I'll prove that to you, uh, that I'm not just talking hot air. <laughs> and, uh, so, we, 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 we look, and the amazing thing is, if, if you take two Bibles, and you open one at Revelation 6, and the other at Matthew 24, the inescapable conclusion is that, though the language uh, uh, and, and the message may be slightly different, the, the, it, the, it's very clear that they're saying exactly the same thing. Um, and so we're going to have a look through at those two passages of Scripture, Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, and you'll see just how clearly, and this is conclusive proof that it's after the rapture, because remember, the rapture happens in Revelation chapter 4. And so all these, these signs, the seal signs uh, that we've been looking at in Revelation 6 are after the rapture, and they correspond perfectly with Jesus' teaching in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, of, of the Olivet Discourse. And so you can go, take your two Bibles, open one at Matthew 24, open the other at Revelation 6, and you see sequentially the same things happening. Matthew 24 and verse 5. Many will come in my name and deceive many. Jesus was talking about deception. Remember when we looked at the white horse, we said the white horse was written by not Christ, but the Antichrist who was a deceiver. And so in, in, in verse 5, you have the picture of the white horse and the deceiver taking place. So many will come in my name and deceive. The, whole, the emphasis is on deception. And that really speaks of the white horse. The very next verse goes on, Jesus goes on to talk about, and he says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Well, what, what is that a picture of? That is the picture of the red horse. The red horse brings wars. Uh, and so it's following sequentially. Verse 7, there will be famines, which is symbolic of the black horse. Remember that the, the rider on the black horse has scales in his hands, and he's bringing about famine and starvation. It's following exactly the same pattern here in, in Matthew 24. And in verse 7, it goes on to talk about death and pestilence. Well, what's that? That's the pale horse. Remember, the, the pale horse brings death and pestilence along with it. And, and then you jump down to, to verse 9. So you skip a verse, go down to verse 9, and Jesus says, And they shall deliver you up, and, and, and you will be afflicted, and they shall kill you. What's that speaking about? 
that's the, the, the revelation of the, uh, the martyrs in, in Revelation 6 9. It's where the martyrs are. So you've got the white horse, the, the, the black horse, or the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse, and you've got the martyrs. And they're following sequentially. Everything that Jesus taught is parallel in Revelation 6. And so very clearly, uh, in Matthew 24, the, the Olivet Discourse is post-rapture, uh, uh, I think, for it. So, very important. Then we looked at the, the fact that the, the martyrs, how many know that martyrs have a very special place in God's heart? Yeah. You know? It's like they've they paid the ultimate sacrifice. They've done the things that nobody else would do. I, I was just reading last night, a little parenthesis here. Uh, I, I was reading about Anne Askew, um, a, a, a lady that lived, lived in England in 16, 1546. And that she got into some uh, trouble with the religious authorities. And they tried to get her to recant. And she refused to back off from what she believed the word of God was saying. And as a result of that, they put her on the rack. Can you believe it? And they stretched her until they pulled all the joints out of place. And she passed out from the pain. But when she came to, she actually preached to, to her tormentors for two hours while, while they carried her away. She kept on preaching and telling them that they needed to repent. Finally, they took her out to burn her at the stake, and they offered her a pardon. And she said, I, I haven't come this far to deny my Lord. And she was praising and preaching to, to the, the people who had come to watch her die uh, and giving glory to God on the way to being burnt at the stake. They had to carry her in a box because all her joints were out of place. She couldn't walk. And they burnt her to the stake. I mean, such devotion. I, I, that story has haunted me. I, I read it last night and I cannot get it out of my head. It's like, God, where's my commitment? How does my commitment parallel these martyrs? Nothing. God, I've got to wake up. I want to go deeper. I want to know God like that. I don't know about you, but I want to be so sincere that if my life was tested, God give me this. I don't know that I'm there. I'll tell you that now. But I want that. I want to have God's strength and courage to be able to stand up for him like that. that. Sorry, that's a parenthetical. But we saw that that these martyrs uh, in in, in, uh, Revelation 6 uh, were, were not the church. Some people say that the church, and we can see that they're not, because remember, these martyrs are conquered, and we know that they're conquered because the Antichrist cuts their head off. I don't know about you, I'm kind of partial to my head, and you're not getting it unless you kill me first. So you'd have to conquer me to take my head. And so Revelation 20, verse 4, talks about these, the martyrs who are beheaded. We know that this is not the church. Remember the, the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, this cannot be the church. This must be the tribulation saints. Very important distinction that we get there. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against us, and, and yet these people are so thoroughly conquered, they actually beheaded. Okay, these are the tribulation saints. And we saw that their souls were kept under the altar of God. Uh, some, some place very special and, and very close to the Lord. You know, it's absolutely amazing. The, the emphasis, why the altar? Because that's where, where the shedding of blood takes place, at the altar. And uh, it emphasizes the fact that they, they've given their, their lives in worship and service to God, and that they love not their lives even unto death. And so, uh, it, and it draws upon the Old Testament imagery. Remember, we, we looked at uh, very briefly how when, when the Old Testament uh, 
a priest offered the, 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 the burnt sacrifice, and any blood that was left over was poured at the base of the altar. And Leviticus 4.7 speaks about that. And so you see how, how God uh, is honoring the altar, the martyr, by having them at the altar of sacrifice. Okay, so some, of us, some people teach that we, the church, go through the tribulation. I'm hammering this because it's so prevalent. But let me say to you, the church is not the object of God's wrath. Amen? We're the object of God's love because we are the bride of Christ. Therefore, we are not going to be judged like the world. God doesn't say to the bride, man, you know, come with me, uh, but you know, I'm going to take you to heaven, but before I do that, I'm going to beat you up in the world's greatest holocaust, and it's going to be the worst thing you've ever imagined. But after that, honestly, you're going to love being with me. But if anyone with any sense being a Christian knows that, Pastor, for goodness sake. No, they don't, Sandy. They're people oh. who teach this. And that's why we need the answers to be able to set them straight. And so it's, it's really important. Then we, then we saw uh, the, 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 how crystal clear it becomes in Romans 8.1. Do you remember we were looking at, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus, who walk not after the, the flesh, but after the spirit. And we looked at that word condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. It, it's the Greek word katakrina. Uh, and katakrina means no adverse circumstance. And it comes from a root word meaning katakrino, which means judgment. And so when you put it all together and, and you realize what, what this uh, our weak English word uh, condemnation uh, is trying to say, in the Greek it's very clear. There is therefore now no adverse sentence or judgment for those who walk uh, uh, after the, the, in the Spirit. Um, so we see very clearly that this, this word condemnation has a much richer meaning in Greek and that the reason that we don't get judged or that there's no adverse circumstances is because Jesus paid our price, the debt that we owed at the cross. Amen? Amen. Okay. So very clearly the church does not go through. Okay. So, but sinners, for those who don't have a covenant... They are in trouble. Everybody who does not have a covenant is in grave straits. Okay? And we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, and we looked at 3, three through 7, and, and it's, they're worth repeating. Uh, Paul says to them, says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Not even the smallest smidgen. Not the tiniest thing. There must be not even a hint of sexual immorality. I want you to pause and just think. That would include things like pornography. Fornication, adultery, LGBTQ activity, prostitution, or any other kind of sexual immorality, or any other kind of impurity, Paul goes on to say, or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, anything rude, crude, or vulgar, doesn't belong to the Christian, amen? Anything rude, crude, or vulgar. No foolish talk or coarse joking. That would cover things like swearing or telling dirty jokes. These are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure of. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You should underline that scripture. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. So, the anger, the wrath of God, is not poured out upon the bride, but upon the evil, upon the wicked, upon the children of disobedience. 
Anybody who does not have a covenant is in deep trouble. That's why we need uh, uh, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now, uh, uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who have a covenant, are safe. Even though we may, we may sin. If you really love God and you're serving God, part of the covenant is that you deal with your sin yourself. That every time you, you, you muck up and we do, we repent. Amen? Mm. And we keep pursuing God. And that's the beauty of the covenant. Because when it, the covenant says that if we are pursuing God, even though we make mistakes, and we surely do, I'm the cheapest of sinners because I came after Paul. Um, so, you know, even though we make mistakes, the, the covenant says that we are forgiven. Our past, present, and future sins are forgiven in Christ. What a wonderful uh, uh, deal God gives to, to the church. That's the covenant. Then we saw the opening of the sixth year, and it was a flash forward. Remember that the altars, the, the, the martyrs under the altar had just asked God, you know, when are you going to avenge our blood? We were killed for you. When are you going to avenge our blood? And, and the sixth seal is like an answer to that. And we saw uh, um, there was a flash forward, like a movie preview. Uh, it shoots us forward in time to the great earthquake that's unparalleled. Did anybody watch the, the, the volcanic um, thing on, on Monday night, clip, or Sunday night? Uh, on Prime TV. It's about what's underneath uh, New Zealand. I think it's a series that's going on on Prime. It scared the devil out of me. <laughs> it was unreal. But what about being here, living here, Lord? Um, but uh, yeah, you might want to try and catch it on Prime uh, this evening. I'm not sure of the time, but very interesting. So, and we saw that this was the wrath of the land. And uh, I, I want to say something to you. But although it talks about this, the, the great earthquake being the wrath of the land, remember the wrath of the land doesn't begin with the sixth seal. It begins at the first seal. Okay? Very important to understand that. Now we come to chapter 7. And it's kind of a parenthetical um, uh, scripture, uh, chapter. And, and we're going to come across a couple of these. And, and, and uh, what, what, what you see is there's divine judgment and then it's like, and it gets heavy, doesn't it? Sometimes you go through the God, this is heavy stuff. And so these, every now and again you get these parenthetical passages and, and Revelation 7 is one of the parenthetical passages. And it gives the reader a time to catch their breath, a time to uh, have their hope uh, uh, lifted and, and be in encouragement. It also gives time for those on earth to uh, reflect on their lifestyle and repent. You see, because God is all about reaching the lost. And it, it becomes very important. We saw that, that God doesn't want any to perish. And so He's about reaching the lost. You know, even though it's late and we really, you know, the tribulation's in full swing, God is still trying to reach the lost. His primary concern, even though it's late. <coughs> God is still trying to gather the harvest. Why? Because the harvest, every person is precious to Christ. God doesn't want anybody to suffer. God doesn't want anybody to be lost. And so he's entrusted this incredible message of salvation to the church and says, why don't you go and tell others? Why don't you speak to others about what's coming and to show them that there is a way of escape? And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Amen. And so it becomes really important that we see that that these guys on earth have, have a chance to reflect and repent and get saved. So, chapter 7 really divides itself into two halves, two halves, 
and deals with two different groups of people. And Pastor, what's the, because I'm studying through this, what's, what's the heading for this teaching? Um, it, if, if you like, um, you can call it um, how Joshua is the Old Testament revelation. Okay. I, I haven't given it a title, but if you want okay. to leave it. <laughs> and we're going to see how, that, how incredible um, that is as we get into this. But chapter 7 comes and it divides itself into two parts. Remember at the end, we, we ended off last week by saying, uh, we're talking about the wrath of the Lamb. It says, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Chapter 7 begins to answer that, that question. There are two groups of people who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb. And we're going to read about them. Okay, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to read through 3. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having a seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. So these angels have a temporary pause until they seal the people. They're going to destroy the earth. They're going to, they're going to wreak havoc on earth. But they are told to stop until God seals uh, those that are his with a seal in their foreheads. This is the first group of people. And it's the 144,000. You, you all heard about them. Um, who are sealed in, in their foreheads, you know. And I, and I think, I, I kind of agree with Dr. Reagan. He's, these 144,000 are probably converted uh, soon after the rapture when, when Russia comes down and God supernaturally destroys the Russian army on the hills of, of uh, Israel. And it's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and, and it goes on. And, and the reasons why I believe that this is a, the... Um, the time frame where you have the rapture, you have the short space of time, uh, and you have the Ezekiel 38 battle, and then you have the Antichrist arising, and he signs the, the, the treaty with Israel. It's that gap that we're talking about. Okay. So, the 144,000, and the Bible is very explicit here. It says, there are 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from that tribe. I'm not going to bore you by reading it. But it's very clear that these 144,000 are Jews. And they, they're 12,000 from each of the tribes. Don't let the JWs tell you that they're part of the 144,000. <laughs> these are Jews, not JWs. All right? And so... If, if they are, if, if they come in and you say, oh, oh, really, what tribe are you from? <laughs> because the Bible makes it very clear that there are 12,000 from each tribe. And they go preaching to their Jewish brothers and, and sisters, but their impact is so much greater. Their impact actually reaches around the world. And we're going to see uh, how that actually pans out. But that, that's why uh, God has sealed them, so that they can preach, so that people can get saved even in this terrible time. Because, you know, sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you're ready to turn your life over to God. Amen? And so the whole purpose of the tribulation is to try and get the, the most rebellious, the most stubborn, resistant people to repent. God doesn't want to destroy them. He wants them to bend the knee to get saved. And that's Those the, Jews go through great tribulation. They try to, the Antichrist tries to annihilate them. Absolutely. He sure does. Okay. So let's, let's read on. So their ministry is reaching around the world. And we see in verses 9 and 10, it says, After this, 
I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. These are Jews and Gentiles. They're from every nation, every tribe, every kindred. They are affected and get saved because of the witnessing of the 144,000. How do we know that? Because verse 9 says, Metatauta, after this. Uh, Metatauta is the, uh, is the uh, Greek for uh, what takes place hereafter. It says, after this. Um, and uh, I looked. Uh, so what's taking place means salvation of these Gentiles follows chronologically the sealing of the 144,000. In other words, there's a cause and effect relationship going on here. The, the, the 144,000 are sealed, and now they go out and they preach the gospel. Uh, so after this, they go out and preach the gospel, and, and this massive multitude gets saved that no man could number. I'm telling you, this is going to be an awesome revival right here in the middle of Revelation. It's going to be absolutely Incredible. Some have postulated that this is going to be one of the greatest revivals ever. Dr. Reagan says, the primary purpose of the tribulation is not punishment. And you really need to underscore that. The primary purpose of the tribulation is to bring the stubborn to repentance. Because God loves even the rebellious. Thank God he does, because I was chiefest of sinners. There's going to be an incredible harvest of souls. Uh, as everyone comes to repentance in the tribulation. Perhaps one of the greatest revivals that's ever been. You know, some are going to get saved uh, because uh, of the rapture. They're going to realize, hey, mom and dad were right. I'm going to get saved because of the rapture. Some will get saved because of the terrible things happening on earth. Others will get saved because of the preaching of 144,000. And yet others will get saved because of the two special witnesses uh, that we'll come across in, in, in chapter 11. And finally, some will get saved at the last call when an angel preaches the gospel in Revelation 14.6. And you theologians out there will say, hey, an angel preaching the gospel? They're not supposed to do that. You know, we're supposed to preach the gospel. Yes, that's true. So what's going on here? It's a further sign that the, the age of grace has come to an end. Uh, and these are the end times. And so during the, the church age, we are to preach the gospel, not the angels. But at the, at the tribulation, when the age of grace comes to a close, uh, we have an angel in Revelation 14.6 going out and preaching the gospel to the whole world. God's last attempt to, to reach the, even the most stubborn and rebellious. So what do we see? God's judgments here are mixed with mercy. They're tempered with mercy. Because he doesn't wish any to perish. But you know... The hardness of men's hearts. Most men are going to reject God's offer of salvation. But a great number will accept it. Unfortunately for them, it's going to be a incredibly difficult time. They're probably going to end up becoming the martyrs that we've just read about. Their courage, their heroism, uh, as they defy the Antichrist and the false prophet and worship the Lord and lay down their lives is absolutely incredible. It says no man can number these people. They're just going to be a real with the preaching, the understanding. People are going to say, "Hey, the, the, the Christians are right." 
as a result of their sacrifice and as a result of their, their honouring God. Look what God does for them. We, we come to uh, verses 13 through 15. Then one of the elders asked me, These are white robes. Who are they? And where did they come from? Good question. I answered, Sir, you know, these are those who have come out of the tribulation. These are the tribulation saints. These have come out of the tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this is the second group of people. The first group is 144,000 that goes out preaching. The second group is those that get saved uh, and uh, they acknowledge, uh, God acknowledges their heroic sacrifice, their courage, their, their dedication, their commitment that they give in life. Verses 15 through 17. This is how God responds to the amazing sacrifice. Therefore, they will be before the throne of God and will serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you notice verse 17? And the Lamb upon the throne. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Jesus. Again, tell me that Jesus is just a good man, a prophet. No ways. He's on the throne of God in heaven. Yes, God Almighty. Okay. So, some of you theologians out there now have another problem. Okay, you didn't know it, but you, you have. If the Holy Spirit is taken out... How are people getting saved? Remember, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict men of sin and of judgment that to, to come. So, if it, at the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit was taken out of the picture in order uh, to, to let the man of sin be revealed. Remember, it was the Holy Spirit that was restraining uh, the Antichrist. Um, and so, uh, how, do, how are people getting saved? If the Holy Spirit is in heaven, how are people on earth getting saved? Well... The answer is quite simple, actually, praise God. Uh, but, uh, you know, Dr. Grant Jeffrey, his excellent book, The Apocalypse, answers it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, and therefore God is omnipresent. The, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He, yes, he is in heaven with the church, but he's also on earth. That's the very definition of omnipresence. And so his role of restraining evil may have ended... But his ministry in saving souls continues, even in the tribulation. He is the one who is convicting these people in the tribulation, and they're giving their hearts to the Lord, and we're having this, uh, this fine uh, salvation. Some of you would have, might have had a problem with that. But, okay. Now we come to chapters 8 and 9. Okay. Uh, and, and God's judgment resumes. So we have this parenthesis. This rest time where they had a chance to catch their breath and get saved, hopefully. Now God's judgments resume. There's silence, and we get to the last of the seven seals. Revelation 8.1 And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. There was silence in heaven for the space of that. That's positive proof that there's no woman in heaven. There was silence for half an hour. Uh, sorry, sorry, ladies. Sorry. Shane told me to say that. Shane, I told you it was a bad idea. Sorry, did you read that again? I was busy writing. 
What led up to the coffee? Okay, Revelations 8 1 talks about the silence in heaven. Okay. Shane, I told you there was a bad idea. Okay, no. No, Shane didn't say that. I'm sorry, Shane. Heather. It's only 30 minutes, so it's not true. <laughs> we need a hole, stop digging. Okay. So there's silence in heaven, and this, this is where it gets really interesting. Let's just read verses 1 and 2. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them was given trumpets. Some clever fellow figured this out. It's amazing. There's a correlation between the silence and the trumpets. Ah, silence and the trumpets. Where have you heard that before? Mm. The book of Joshua. Oh. Remember, we're going to go. We're going to go and look in, in, into that. But before I, we, we get into that, we, I want to just share something. There is a difference between the way uh, the Gentiles look at prophecy and the way the Jews look at prophecy. It's very different, uh, and, and we, we're going to look at that. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Greek mindset is uh, deals with prophecy like this: prediction, fulfillment, prediction, fulfillment. It's kind of linear: prediction, fulfillment. To the Jewish mindset, they have a totally different uh, approach to prophecy. It's more circular. And, uh, and, and so, as a result of that, uh, they, they look for patterns uh, in the way that God deals with the predictions of the future. And it's really called the Mishnaic approach. And the Mishnaic approach really, literally interpreted, means uh, repetition instruction. So, repetitious instruction. That's the Mishnahic approach, and that's the way the Jews look at it. And it comes from the, the Hebrew word Shana, and Shana literally means to repeat. And so the Jews, when they're looking at prophecy, they're looking for things that repeat, for repeating patterns. That's the way they look at it. And, and so now we're going to see the silence and the trumpet as part of a repeating pattern in the, both the book of Revelation and in the book of Joshua. It's part of the repeating sequence. Is there anything else that would draw our attention to, to this to this book in the Bible. Well, it's interesting. You know, we, we, we shared before how, how Joshua uh, is uh, the uh, literally means uh, Jehovah saves. That's what his name means, and it's really the Greek version of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, Yeshua, as we often call him, Yeshua, uh, is is the, the the Greek version of Joshua, Yahushua in Hebrew. And so you can hear the, the name Joshua in the name Jesus. So they are linked linguistically. One could argue that there is a book in the Old Testament that's named Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahushua. And so uh, you can see how that, they're connected. So I think any book with the name of Jesus in the Old Testament might uh, deserve a little bit more exploring. How yeah. they so what is the book of Joshua really about? I want to summarize it because it's about 30 chapters. We haven't got time to go through that. But it's really the story about a military commander who opposes uh, those uh, um, people who resist God. And uh, as a result of them, he tries to dispossess them. Because remember, the land was given to Abraham. And now these usurpers have come to the land. And uh, Joshua wants to displace them and claim what is rightfully his. Do you know the same thing is going on in the book of Revelation? I think Numbers 20 
Oh, there's, there's plenty in there. Let, let, you can go, we keep you in here. Maybe we can have a, have a discussion on that at the, at the end, Jenna. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Okay, but, but who, uh, when the angel appears uh, to Joshua and he says, are you for us or against us? Who are you? And he says, I'm the captain of, of, of uh, the Lord's host. Mm. Uh, so we, we have uh, this military commander um, uh, who's dispersing the, the, the lost from the land, the, the wicked from the land. And it's really the same um, criteria, the same agenda of, of, of Jesus, you know. Uh, he's the captain of our salvation, isn't he? And he has the title deeds of the world which he purchased at the cross. And so, we see that he, now that he's opening his seals, he's dispossessing sinners who oppose God from the land. It's really the same agenda as, as the book of Joshua. Joshua waged a seven-year campaign from 1339 B.C. to 1406 B.C. That was the, the campaign that Joshua fought. How many know that Jesus also waged a seven-year campaign in the end times? It's called the Tribulation. And so you see the pattern beginning to build. Then it goes on. Uh, Joshua sent two spies in to gather intel into the land. Remember they get Rahab to switch sides. Rahab the harlot. She switched off. So what's effectively happened? They, they witnessed to Rahab, and, and she gets saved, and she becomes the, the mother of who? The mother of Boaz. And so who becomes the hero of the book of Ruth. And so we see how, how Joshua, and, and, and we were looking how, how Ruth tied into the book of Revelation. Now we see how Joshua ties into the book of Revelation. Well, how do we know that after Joshua sent in the spies, that, that in Revelation... You've got a corresponding thing going on here. Because Jesus sends in two witnesses into the enemy's camp. And they preach the gospel and multitudes get saved. Here in, in Joshua, it's only Rahab gets saved. But in Revelation, it's multitudes who are getting saved. Okay. So, are there any other repeating patterns? Oh, yes. When the action starts... Remember, they sent the spies in. They think, okay, we're going to take the land. The first thing that happened is they walked around Jericho in silence. And on the seventh day, they walked around seven times. And on the seventh time, they blew their trumpet. And the walls came crashing down. It's happening in Revelation. As you open the seals, first there's silence. For half an hour. And then there's seven, there's the number of seven there, the seven trumpets are blown. Even more, the pattern begins to develop because God is getting a message across to us. Joshua chapter 10 and verses 3 and 4. You see how Joshua's enemies unite under a very powerful leader. His name is Adonai Dezek. And it's very interesting when you look at what Adonai Dezek means. It actually means the Lord of Righteousness or the Lord of Justice. If you go back into the root, it's actually uh, justice, but, uh, but it can be interpreted the Lord of Righteousness. And when I saw that, I thought, huh? What's going on here? Because Adonai Dizek is, is defeated in the story. And I, I, was, I was confused for, for a while. And suddenly, I thought, ah, this is the fake Lord of Righteousness. This is the type of the Antichrist who is defeated. And so we see this pattern developing in, in, 
in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, how it's really beginning to grow and to develop. It goes on further, would you believe? You get more similarities in the book of Joshua and, and, and the book of Revelation. How is this Adonai, Zizek, and, and, and the enemies defeated? Remember, God fights against them. And he sends hailstones down upon them. And do you remember what Joshua said? There's signs in the heavens and in the, the, and the sun and the moon. Joshua said, stand still in the valley of Ajalon. And so we see God fighting for them. There's signs in heaven, sun and moon standing. This is just straight out of the book of Revelation. It's amazing. Joshua's enemies run to hide in caves. And they discover it. And they seal them by rocks. Then they ultimately kill. Remember in the book of Revelation we read how the wicked hide themselves in caves and ask for the rocks to fall on them that they might die? The book of Revelation is just the book of Joshua on a much grander scale. It's quite, quite amazing the, the number of points of similarity. So the, the, the book of Joshua is a type of the book of Revelation when you understand the two words. And to me, this demonstrates the wisdom of God. Over and over, God foretells events hundreds and even thousands of years in advance. He tells them before they happen, and in different ways, in repeating patterns, and in great detail. And it demonstrates that God really does know the end from the beginning. They can weave these stories around and have people name their kids Adonai and Isaac and, you know, the whole thing. God knows the end from the beginning. And it really is proof that we can fully trust prophecy. That the things that God has said will ultimately come to pass. For me, this is proof of divine inspiration. When you can have story upon story, you can read it for, for, for years and years and years, and suddenly God enlightens you, and you see it in a whole different light. But the scriptures, you can never plumb the depth of the mm. word of God. Amen? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're all absorbed in it, you know. Yeah, we're absorbed. As long as it's not, you're not going to study, we should shut up. Alright, so I think that this, this whole scenario about the book of Joshua is really uh, God telling us in different patterns, in different ways, to say, hey, you can trust me. I know the end from the beginning. I know what's going to happen. For me, that's great encouragement. Okay, let's get back to our study. That was a little. Another divergence that I had. <laughs> Revelations 8.1 When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Suddenly they realized everyone's holding their breath as they realize more judgments are about to come. They are sober, they are awestruck. Uh, now the seals are off. The seventh seal has come off. The scroll can be opened. Because, you know, what happened was that when they, when they sealed the scroll, I, I should have explained this before, but they would take a parchment and they would roll it up a little way and they would seal it. Then they'd roll it up a little more, and then they'd seal it. And then they'd roll it up a little more, and then they'd seal it. So you've got seven seals. In it. And, that's, and, and what's happening in the book of Revelation is each seal is coming off, and we're seeing these judgments that are coming in. Now the seventh seal has been removed, and the, 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 those in, church, in heaven are holding their breath. This is really an, an ominous and foreboding time, as the seventh seal brings forth the seven trumpet judgments. The first four trumpet judgments deal with the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the air. It's really talking about the ecological devastation that's poured out on the earth at, the, at that time. It's, a, it's really a devastating destruction. 
Let's read from verse 3. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense with the prayers of all saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the, of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, lightning flashes, and another earthquake. You can see this, the, the, the contrast between the absolute silence and then suddenly all hell breaks loose as, as uh, these judgments come forth. There's been much conjecture about who this third angel is. And uh, I, I, I was studying, and, I, and I, some, some guys, I think, ah, yeah, I nailed it, and you go and read the next scroll. I think, oh, no, <laughs> he, he doesn't, uh, doesn't agree at all. So I'm going to give you very, just very briefly what took me hours and hours to figure out. You can have in a couple of minutes. Okay, here. So this other angel, okay, some say, uh, it's contentious, um, but uh, I'll share it with you. Some say that this is Jesus, and he's the high priest ministering at the altar of heaven. I must warn you, both these, both these arguments sound very logical and rational. Okay, So they, they, they say, well, Jesus appeared as, as an angel. Well, yes, he did that many times in the Old Testament. Remember in, in, the, in the book of Judges, uh, when, when Samson was to be born, uh, the angel appeared to Manoah and his wife, and um, they were speaking about that, and, and Manoah wasn't there. He finally said, let the angel come again, and the angel comes again. And he says, what is your name that we can, we can honor you? And he said, you know, why do you want to know my name? For it is a secret. And that word secret is very interesting, because it's the Hebrew word peli. And peli actually translates as wonderful. The name of this angel is called Wonderful. Hello, I've heard that somewhere before. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 9 6 says, And his name shall be called Wonderful, Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. This is Jesus. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. You see Jesus appearing uh, as an angel in, in the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's there, and, uh, and he appears in the fiery furnace to save the three Hebrew children. And now Jesus begins to judge the world, and he throws fire to the earth. So, Paul actually references this in Romans 1.18. He says, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The judgments of Christ have been manifested. This is not the scorned saviour. This is the judge of all the earth. Oh, ah, got it, nailed it. Okay, Jesus. The counter-argument, and uh, I'll show you. And ultimately, the identity of this angel is not as important as what he does. So don't hang up whether it's Jesus or whether it's not Jesus. What he does is important. But those that say that this is not Jesus offer this argument in, in response. They say it's positively not Christ. Jesus is no longer the intercessor of the church. Remember, he, he, he transitioned offices from being the intercessor. He then receives the, the, the scroll, the seven seal scroll in, in, in Revelation uh, 5 and 6. And, and as a result of that, uh, he becomes the judge of the earth. And as judge, he's in charge of everything that is happening in the book of Revelation. So he's not on earth. He's not moving around like one of the actors on the stage of earth. 
Uh, no, Christ is in heaven with the church. He's not the intercessor anymore. Now he's the judge and the place of judgment. So you say, well, you know, the, the, the Jesus is ministering as the uh, intercessor. Others say, no, he, he's not the intercessor. And your, your thing, your flashing. Oh, sorry. Um, thank you. Um, and so, but I would say to you, they, they both offer reasonably sound arguments. I don't think it's quite as important um, as uh, who he is as to what they do. I think that that's far more important. And so, but I want to just close this morning by giving an overview of what's happening during the tribulation. The tribulation saints are being persecuted like never before. They've been beheaded, they've, they've been arrested, they've been brutally treated. They're starving to death because they can't buy or sell anything. They're going through a really rough time. And their prayers, Lord, avenge our blood, because this is not the age of grace anymore. This is the end times. Okay. And so we'll, we'll pick it up uh, next week. And I, I hope to have a little bit more to try and identify uh, this third angel. But that's as far as I got. Uh, it took quite a long time. But uh, I, I hope uh, that uh, was encouraging for you. Okay. Praise God. Let's just bow our heads in the Lord.